Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Norman Horn, founder of LibertarianChristians.com, now the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is our executive director, Nick Gausling, along with Jason Rink and Doug Stewart, board members and contributors to LCI. Today, Doug is going to lead a discussion about pacifism and self-defense in Christian ethics and how it relates to libertarianism today. So a few years ago, Doug uh, wrote an article that addressed something that John Piper, a, fa- a well-known theologian in evangelical circles, that wrote and published on his blog regarding the use of force in personal situations. Doug's response was, I thought, very enlightening, and we wanted to put together a conversation between us uh, for, for today that really addressed the importance uh, the, of, of pacifism and violence and addressing these issues in the Christian libertarian tradition. Uh, it's really important to wrestle with this question because, you know, libertarianism has a lot to say about the use of force. But then sometimes we have to ask ourselves, how far are we, are we willing to go with the use of violence in personal situations? So hopefully with this conversation, we'll have some interesting discussion about, you know, what it is that we think and how we be- what we believe that Jesus is saying to us and trying to elucidate how Jesus would have us behave now and forever. So Doug is going to start us off and we will see what happens. Doug, let's talk about violence. Yeah, Norman, I think this is a very important uh, question for Christians and Christian libertarians to wrestle with. And you are correct that it is definitely a lot of there's definitely a lot of uh, passionate debate on on either side. I don't think it's any secret to any Christian um, who's been a Christian for a while that this is a debate that has been going on in the church for many many years, if not its entirety of existence as to whether or not it's appropriate for Christians to engage in violence, um, either at all or in small measures or in, in partnership with you know, the government in form of military. There's all kinds of questions that we tend to uh, have, and you know, we can't tackle every, different, every, bit, every angle on this uh, in one podcast episode. But we do want to talk about today what is the what is a position on violence that is appropriate for a Christian libertarian. And of course, I believe what I believe. I think it's the correct view, but um, I certainly see a lot of uh, room for error in the way that I think. And so I realize that there'll be listeners out there who will hear some of the things that I might propose or that uh, the other three of us may propose that just doesn't sit well with them. I would just uh, ask you to give us a fair hearing, consider what it is that we're saying. Maybe, uh, maybe you're a little bit wrong, maybe I'm a little bit wrong, and uh, see, see where we come up. As Norman mentioned, the kind of impetus for the article that was written, it was about a year ago, January 16th, 2016, was when I wrote my article, and that was in response to this little kerfluffle, or big kerfluffle that you might want to call it, between uh, John Piper and his um, usual... Uh, it wasn't a kerfuffle between him and his usual foes. His usual foes and people who didn't care much for him were actually on his side. And so he just kind of raised a big issue based on his response to something that Liberty University Jerry Falls, Falwells uh, said during a chapel service. And I was kind of watching this 
argument emerge on the internet and just keep going on and on. And I really, I really thought that the Christian libertarian perspective sort of has a, a good angle on it for a number of reasons. And so when we, when we talk about this kind of stuff, it's easy to get really off topic. It's easy to get really, really emotional. And it's easy to not listen to the people that you're talking with. They probably have better points than you might give them credit for. And so I was just seeing all of this go back and forth. And I would read one article, you know, saying that Piper said this. And I would read Piper's article, and he didn't say anything like it. And I don't understand why people publish things um, saying, well, Piper says this when he explicitly said something different. And so part of the, the tenor of my article was to basically say, hey, there's a lot to, to go around here in terms of uh, good points to be made, but let's make sure we're all also listening to, to what we're saying. You know, the, the word pacifism is kind of a tough word for me. I am not a huge fan of using that word. It's, it has a stigma to it that uh, connotes being passive. And so when people talk about a pacifist, they think of somebody or they imagine someone just standing around letting violence happen to them um, or not even just doing anything, just standing still in the face of violence. And that is just simply kind of a, a caricature. Um, it's really not that. Um, it's really more about nonviolent resistance. So for those of you who might understand pacifism and listen to us and say the word pacifist or pacifism, um, we, we don't really mean being passive. Um, it's really just a refusal to engage in violence. Um, making a conscious decision to use nonviolence to resist violence, sort of the principle, do not repay evil with evil. So nonviolent resistance is probably the best way to describe it. One of the things that often is important in this discussion is people talk about, well, okay, in libertarian thought, of course, you have permission to engage in self-defense against violent action against you. And logically and from natural law perspective, that is correct. But does that permission uh, of, of using legal force in those situations obligate us to do it? The question I think that, that we want to ask ourselves oftentimes is, uh, you know, whether, you know, sure, we have permission or prerogative to use that force, but are we called to a different or higher standard as Christians? Now, that is somewhat separate from the libertarian question, but then there also are some implications for that and how to reduce violence in the long run, too, I think, de depending on how you answer that. And so there's there seems to be some other interesting uh, interactions at play here where Christian ethics, you know, it pushed forward in this way um, makes a bigger difference than just tacitly saying, okay, cool, go with self-defense whenever you can. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely an important question. And if we don't wrestle with it, I think uh, we are doing a great disservice to our Christian testimony. So in, in the sense of obligation to use self-defense, I think it's more important to feel obligated to wrestle with this question. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough because, you know, I, in, in certain situations, you know, I'll hear a noise at night and I'm laying in bed and I'm like, oh, what if something, somebody's breaking into my house? What would I do? There are those sort of situations where I think, well, would I do this? Would I use a gun to use lethal force? I certainly do wrestle with this. One of the things that tends to stick in our minds is what am I allowed to get away with? You know, does my natural rights right? it allows me to defend myself, or I will maybe use an excuse to uh, protect other people as a reason to justify killing somebody else. And I think that's, that's fine to, to wrestle through that, but 
I would say I would start with this principle. Christians are obligated to the ethics of Christ in order to act in the least violent way possible in any given moment. And I think that's really important to like when people kind of start off with what am I allowed to do? What can I get away with? It gets a little hairy. It's not exactly a huge change overall, but it gets you into a different mindset that will lead you to slightly different answers to those situations. So if you start talking about what are the ethics of Christ or how might I de-escalate violence most efficiently, then I think there's there's like that's very useful as a mode of thought. Well, right. And you know, I think part of that obligation means that we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for future scenarios where we will have to act. And if the only option we have is to respond to violence with violence, and that's the only one we've ever prepared for, I, mm, I don't think we've really thought through it in a way that is consistent with, with, Christian, with Christian ethics. Doug, what you just said there really connects with Matthew chapter 5, starting in roughly verse 38 or so, when, when, we, when you hear about turning the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount. In a sense, what Jesus is doing there is he's giving us situations to kind of prepare our minds to deal with such things. Uh, that really, I think, connects with what you're saying there. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think Jesus didn't—he didn't just come to tell us, okay, well, don't do this and do this. I mean, most Christians kind of use a cliche, well, the Bible isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It is—it does provide us some ethical direction, including what you're saying here is that including some scenarios that— that we can, again, play through our minds and, and think through. Derek Flood, he wrote a book called Disarming Scripture, and I highly recommend it for a number of reasons. And one of the quotes from his book that really stood out to me was, the goal of enemy love, which is really the essence of nonviolence, the goal of enemy love is not to subject oneself to violence, but to act to break the cycle of violence. And so with for Flood, that is, that is something that... It isn't really just about, well, what do I do or not do? Oh, shoot, I can't react in violence because even though someone's about to protect or someone's about to like harm my children or harm someone else in the same, you know, restaurant that I'm eating in. Oh, shoot, I can't do anything. That has nothing to do. I just kind of laugh when when uh, when people think of pacifism in that way. I was like, it really does not do it justice. And I think anybody who thinks that of a pacifist would probably feel equally outraged if someone is in favor of the right to bear arms, if a pacifist just saw them as bloodthirsty. Well, that's ridiculous, too. And I think they would be equally outraged. So not only, I think, are Christians obligated to make sure that they can always act in the least violent way possible, I think we also have an ex- uh, a we, I think we also have a responsibility to consider the ramifications that are created by our choices. So what do I mean by that? If you choose, after serious deliberation and consideration, that you're willing to use lethal force, what does this communicate? Or if you are promoting that it's legitimate for Christians to do so, what does that communicate? What does it signal to other people? If you're the kind of person who is a Christian, you're Christian, let's say you have children, what impression are your children getting that you're always target practicing with your handgun? and that you're always carrying it with you, and they are going to ask you questions, and you're going to say, what? You need to be able to prepare, you need to be prepared for how do you answer that, and be consistent with the ethic of Christ to love your neighbor and to promote peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is the prince of peace. What does it mean for us to promote peace? 
on the one hand, if it means carrying a handgun, you're prepared to stop violence as it happens. You know, is it is it might be about to happen in a restaurant, say, as an example? Sure. That that's one way to think about it. But it's another to be carried away with being um, ready to use violence. Now, on the other hand, you also have to think about, well, if you decide that you're not going to use lethal force in any or in any situation, what does this communicate to those around you as well? Does your family know that this is part of your ethic and it's part of your principled stance against violence that it's maybe possible that you're going to have to sacrifice your family's life? Are they aware of that? And what are the ramifications and how do you how do you respond to that? And so the questions aren't, aren't easy at all. And third, if you actively promote gun ownership, what sort of cultural message does it send? Liberty University recently set up a firing range so that their students could learn how to be uh, good marksmen with guns. That's a Christian university promoting the use of what I would probably guess is responsible gun ownership. They want people to be prepared and not just own a gun only. So there's that. And so what sort of cultural message does it send to the wider world that a Christian university is promoting not only gun ownership, uh, but the use of it to be ready to use it uh, if need be? I'm not saying that that is a wrong approach to take. I have some alternatives to sort of uh, talk about with that, but there is that to consider. So, yeah, you know, guys, uh, what this actually brings up has a lot to do with what we uh, talked about in our in our prior episode about how the New Testament really sort of asks us to to consider these questions like what kind of people uh, should we be? So it's not just a matter of opening up the rule book and and flipping over to page thirty five. It's really about being shaped by the story of the gospel and who Christ is and who he calls us to be within the context of, of new creation. Uh, another thing, I mean, when, we, when we're considering this as Christians, we always have to start with the ethical issues before the practical issues. I, I think that any, anyone here who is a Christian who's listening would probably agree with that, but we always have to start with the question, uh, what does God want us to do? before we ask the question, well, what is going to be effective or what is going to be the result? Not that those questions are unimportant, but the ethics precedes that. Yet even so, uh, the, the data actually indicates that you know, people carrying more weapons doesn't necessarily lead to less violence. There's some studies that show, that suggested that it does. There's other studies that suggest that nonviolent means uh, can be just as effective, if not more effective than, than violent means. So it's not like there's just this easy answer where if you go, uh, yes, I'm in favor of using violence uh, against violence, then that necessarily means it's going to be more effective when really it, it could be the opposite, because there's data points that that go both ways. Uh, so all, all that is to say, it's not it's not easy to uh, just pigeonhole this issue. These are very complex things, and unfortunately, the the tendency is it it tends to be uh, papered over with a lot of demagoguery that doesn't really look at it from the the whole holistic scope and and apply logic and data and and ethics in, in the process of doing that. 
you know, other common misconceptions that I think come up with this issue have to do with uh, it being a left versus right kind of thing. But, you know, when we consider where different people stand on this issue for different reasons, it's not easy to put it in those kind of categories. So, I mean, we, we started off talking about John Piper, who's one of my personal favorite theologians, and nobody could consider John Piper to be a theological liberal. He's, he's considered to be very theologically conservative. And while if you, if you read his, his article, which just caused a ton of controversy uh, in, in evangelical circles, um, but when you read it, I mean, he, he doesn't even come out as a full-blown pacifist, but even just going in that direction sent some people just like chickens with their heads cut off. Uh, yeah, but it really anyway, struck a nerve when, pe- when it, he wrote that. It did. I mean, I was surprised. I mean, even for someone of, of Piper's notoriety, uh, that were, I've never seen a reaction like that. You were surprised at the reaction, not his position? I mean, yeah. I, was, I was very pleased with his position, and I see how he gets there because I've been following Piper's stuff for years, so I wouldn't say it surprised me that he took that position, and I'm, yeah. I'm very glad that he did. But, yeah, the reaction, I mean, the long knives came out. I mean, people <laughs> who, people who would, have, would have been considered very close ideologically to Piper for, for many, many years all of a sudden were just saying really nasty things about him because yeah. of this issue. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, he, but it, all, all that is to say, you know, Piper is definitely not considered a, a liberal by any means. Um, and, and another person who's uh, very well known, kind of, who would be considered more on the right or right leaning uh, on this issue is Preston Sprinkle. Uh, so, uh, you know, all, all that is, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's not a left right thing. Yes, there are people on the left who hold that issue, like uh, the late Walter Wink, um, Ben Witherington III considers himself a pacifist. I wouldn't really, he's, his politics are kind of leftist, but his theology is a little more conservative. So he's an interesting case on that. Um, he's a good guy. He, he is. He, he's a great scholar. Uh, I, I respect him a lot. And then, you know, you go back to the early church, and they really had a lot to say on this because the, the Gospel of Matthew was the most popular book with the church fathers. They quoted out of it more than any other book, and they saw the Sermon on the Mount as kind of being the, the apex of, of shaping a vision for Christian ethics. And like you guys were talking about earlier, it's not just that these are a couple of exact scenarios that we're supposed to apply uh, in, in the precise way that Jesus said. It's really more about learning how to think a different way. Uh, or as as Walter Wink put in his trilogy on the powers, it's about finding Jesus's third way. You know, rather than just thinking I got to do A or I got to do B, uh, the gospel opens us up to, with the leading of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, explore ways that that maybe we hadn't seen before. Uh, but if we're not open to that. We, we won't even be looking, and we'll just close ourselves off to even considering another option. And just so all the listeners know, we will have these articles in our show notes here. We will link to Doug's original article, to John Piper's original article. We'll link to my exegesis on Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, and a few other pertinent articles that will really help uh, to bring context to the situation as well. I think there's a number of times as Christians when— 
sometimes there's issues that can be ambiguous and and you think I don't know if you've ever done this, but you're sort of like, you know, Jesus could have just said this and then there wouldn't be any confusion about this. But, you know, and and it would be totally clear like this is the thing, you know. And, oh, yeah, and, totally clear. Something is right, clear. Right, right. Something like, as clear as like, thou shalt not kill. Well, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but here's what's interesting about it, right? So, okay, great. Thou shalt not kill. Okay. And so, but then you get to like Luke 22, and it's the time when Jesus is, you know, going to be betrayed, right? And so there's this conversation that he has, and he says to the disciples, you know, uh, in verse 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And, uh, you know, he says, for I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me. It has has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So then they come to take Jesus. And here comes Peter with the sword, cuts off the soldier's ear. And Jesus doesn't say, wait, hold on. Uh, why do you got those swords? You know, why do you even have swords, dude? You shouldn't have any swords. He, he's not happy he cut off the ear, but like there's this passage where it's kind of like, wait a minute, Jesus is like, you should have a couple swords. And they're like, hey, here's two swords, Jesus. And he's not like, wait, no, get rid of those swords. I'm going to be betrayed and I, this could end badly. Like that doesn't happen. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I, I, I think there's uh, <laughs> I think there's passages where people can read them and say, well, wait a minute. There's opportunities where this idea of should we have arms at all? Should we have any way to defend ourselves at all? Uh, well, clearly, there's examples in the New Testament we can point to where it's kind of like, well, it didn't seem like that was a problem. And so I don't know what the uh, you know modern day connection of that is, but I can definitely see how you could look at that and be like, oh, so, you know, two swords, two pistols. Open carry, sweet. Um, you know, it seems to make sense, and yet there's not the condemnation of the possession of the arms. There's a condemnation of cutting off the soldier's ears coming to take Jesus. So, you know, I, I, I look at passages like that, and I say, okay, we start with the character and nature of Christ, and who is he, and what did he do? Well, here's the, the, the man who had every justification to... Uh, react in violence towards those who came against him, uh, who committed no sin, no wrong, great injustice being done against him. He could have called forth a legion of angels to save him, yet he didn't, was crucified, and while he was on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the character and nature of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, all of these things. We take that, and then there's these particular instances that sort of act like these, I don't know, it's like a splinter in the brain, I think. And I think you can look at those and say, well, what does that mean in light of everything else I know? I don't know. Do you guys, do you know what I'm talking about there? Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, I think that's, those are kind of the, the, you're right. Those are the passages that people bring up and, and you brought it up in a very thoughtful way. 
and in the sense that you know you aren't just using it as like yeah but jesus said go buy two swords if you don't have one like you weren't being argumentative in the way you did it it's just kind of like hey and that's that's honestly i mean wherever you come out on the issue i think that's the way to approach it isn't like oh sweet i'm allowed to buy two pistols Um, that reminds me i need to go out and get a sword (laughs) i don't have any swords ah yes so um You know, the other the other thing is, on top of what you were saying, that he, you know, forgave on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They, you know, uh, they don't know what they're doing. Not only that, a resurrected Messiah who was just murdered by the state. Um, you know what his first words were to the disciples who saw him? Don't be afraid. Peace I bring to you. Um, that's a pretty bold statement for people who thought that God's Messiah was going to come back and be pretty, pretty ticked. Um, well, and they, they were probably somewhat afraid that, like, we all abandoned him. I wonder if... Yeah. <laughs> and he's back now. Oh, no. Where are our swords? I, no, not really. But you, they were afraid <laughs> in some respects because of, yeah. they, they didn't know uh, what that meant. Well, the one thing, you know, uh, Nick said earlier about Matthew being one of the more popular books uh, in the early church. Imagine this. Imagine we don't have the whole Bible, and you live and say, 150... AD, and you hear, you don't have a copy on your own, of course, and you're hearing the message of Jesus, and you are realizing that the way of peace is the gospel, and you, okay, obviously you're not going to live this long, but you live from 150 to 300 AD, and now there's this canon of scripture that then has all these other verses, you're not going to be like, oh, you mean the rest of the Bible endorses violence? I don't think that works because we do talk about Jesus being, you know, Jason said earlier about Jesus, you know, revealing the character of God. And I bring that up to say this. I didn't start off this discussion with a list of scripture verses that defend my view, because that would just be me approaching, oh, hey, let me see how the Bible supports my view and tell everyone why I think I'm right, and then we can just kind of bat around a few scripture verses, and, and you know, even if we agreed that, oh, well, you know, there's 20 on one side and three on another, that doesn't necessarily mean that the 20 wins. Um, or if the three were said by the Son of God and the other 20 were said by other characters in the Bible, then that means that the three wins. You know, we can debate all day long about which verses qualify as more important than others, We can throw these around. I think Jason demonstrated in his attitude about that story with Jesus telling people to buy, you know, two swords if they don't have one, and then right away turning around and having uh, that interaction with with Peter is the right approach to take with with Scripture. Because we can always make the Bible say what we want it to say. Yeah, and and just a a couple of things on this this whole track is— it's what's interesting is that in that same passage when you know Peter cuts off the servant's ear then you know Jesus is like no and he puts the ear back on and then he turns to the chief priests and the officers and he says have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs you know he says you know you guys could have taken me during the day but here you are in the dark of night and you're coming after me like I'm some you know robber you know and what's sort of interesting is that if you would look at this from the the pacifist sense or the idea that what if the disciples weren't armed like it is even more of a condemnation of the chief priests and them who are coming out as though those guys represented this violent threat to the power structure which is not never in the new testament did the disciples and Jesus represent this violent overthrow of the power structure? And I think Jesus is commenting on that a little bit there, where he's like, hey, 
you guys are coming after me with these weapons of war and violence, and yet, did we ever demonstrate that that was the path that we were taking? Oh, yeah, I said the kingdom is coming and is overthrowing the kingdoms of this world, but you never saw us waving swords around and trying to usher in the kingdom that way. And so sometimes I think that there's this idea of, um, you got at this earlier about what are we trying to portray to the world? What do we want the world to see that a Christian represents? And you're talking about this idea of fear as well, when Jesus comes back and says, be not afraid. You know, the biggest reason I think that we as Christians might go to our guns and our weapons to defend ourselves and our lives and our families um, from whatever might harm us, in a, in a lot of ways it's rooted in fear, and it's like, this is the thing that, that Jesus took away from us. We are not to fear death. Our lives are all that anybody can take away from us, and yet to die is gain, as Paul said. And I just think that fear drives so many decisions that many of us and Christians make on a daily basis about how we're going to approach these things, rather than stepping back and saying, wait a minute, what do I have to fear? I have nothing to fear from the principalities and powers and from the power structure of this world. And the things that might happen to me in this life is not God sovereign over those events. It does not God know the day and the time of my demise, you know? So again, I'm going to these larger ideas as far as like what should inform the positions that we take about things. It's the nature of who Jesus is and and what he would do. And then it's also the nature of who we are as the children of God and the sovereignty of God and the care that God has over us as we walk as pilgrims through this world. Jason, you make a really cool point there when you point out how Jesus on the Mount of Olives says, do you come at me like a robber? This is actually a very interesting connection to the way that Jesus presents the situations, even in Matthew chapter 5 and those in 38 through 42 there. Uh, what's really cool about it is that in a sense, what Jesus proposes in that little passage is a way of robbing the, the people who are coming against you with their power of their power. And it, it exposes them for what they're doing, that they are that they are doing something that is that is actually less human than anything else in this world to approach other human beings with violence like that. And what's and another thing that's cool is that this proves to us that it is possible because Jesus did it. And this is something that that I think we we can't we cannot emphasize enough that this is not something that is just theoretical. This is possible because Jesus did it. He did it via his victory on the cross. And you know, in, in other words, from uh, this is a little uh, verse from First Peter where it says, "When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he inst he entrusted himself to him who judges justly." This is possible for us even now. Well, and not only that, you know, let, let me just dispel any uh, myth that Jesus had violence in him. In Isaiah, when speaking of the suffering servant, there is the phrase, there was no violence in him at all. So if there's this, you know, people will bring up the, the temple and the money changers as Jesus acting violent, which is another example of, you know, well, maybe, maybe Jesus left the door open for us to be, you know, angry and strike people or... <laughs> Whatever. First of all, he didn't even use a sword. So there's 
there's a sense in which I think it's pretty obvious that this is the ethic of Jesus. I think what, what that leaves us with as Christians is, well, are there exceptions? If there are exceptions in extreme circumstances, what would those be? What appealed to me about, about Piper's article has to do with the tenor and demeanor in which we consider these, this question. Because honestly, I, I would probably consider myself a gun rights pacifist. And it sounds like an oxymoron. It's a little bit, you know, cheeky to, to say it. But I believe in gun rights. I believe you ought to have a right to carry if you want. I believe you have a right to defend yourself constitutionally. I do not believe that just because I don't feel compelled to do so, and and I don't feel compelled to do so based on my Christian theology, that every Christian ought to be exactly like me and not do it as well. And so I, I do believe that it, that people have a right uh, to carry if they want to, and of course that means that they can choose not to, and I think it's the choose not to part that we... People who are all about self-defense and, well, what would you do if, and all of that, that, that makes us a little uneasy. And as Norman said, Jesus can demonstrate, uh, D- Jesus has demonstrated that it can be done. And the nonviolent, uh, tr- the nonviolence tradition, the Anabaptist and pacifist traditions, um, they have many, many stories and tales of nonviolent resistance actually working. Nick mentioned Preston Sprinkle. He wrote a book called Fight. Um, a Christian case for nonviolence. I don't know if that's the actual subtitle, but um, he has a few stories in there as well. Um, Preston Sprinkle says he loves the smell of gunpowder in the morning, and he loves, he has many guns, but he also considers himself, for lack of a better word, a pacifist. And so there is that, it it isn't a left-right issue. Let me read the quote from Piper's article that he stated up front, and it just really, I, I think, really encapsulates you know, my position on it. So let me read it. This is Piper. My main concern in this article is with the appeal to students, and here he's referring to Jerry Falwell in his chapel article, that stirs them up to have the mindset, let's all get guns and teach them a lesson if they come here, referring to Muslims if they were to come onto their campus. The concern is the forging of a disposition in Christians to use lethal force, not as policemen or soldiers, but as ordinary Christians in relation to harmful adversaries. Piper continues, the issue is not primarily about when and if a Christian may ever use force in self-defense or the defense of one's family or friends. There are significant situational ambiguities to answer in the answer to that question. The issue is about the whole tenor and focus and demeanor and heart attitude of the Christian life. Does it accord with the New Testament to encourage the attitude that says, I have the power to kill you in my pocket, so don't mess with me? My answer is no. And that's the end of the end of Piper's quote. You'll notice some things, and I did talk about this in the article. I, I mentioned, I don't know if Piper's ever known for nuance and ambiguity. He's very certain about what he believes on certain things. And yet, even in this article, he, he talks about how, well, it's kind of hard to answer that question completely, but his real point is the whole tenor. And so I'm like, I'm with Piper on this, that, you know, I, to some extent, I don't quite care where you come down on the answer to the question, but what does it mean and what does it say about you that you've decided, okay, I am going to carry and I have, I'm, I'm convicted to do so because maybe, you know, you're in areas where you need to protect people. That's fine. My concern is that people are thoughtful about it. And have an answer and have a feel. I mean, honestly, it's an, an issue of conscience. It's our duty to live peaceably with all people. And if you can reconcile that with what it means to, you know, have the right to bear arms, that's fine.
so yeah, this 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 idea about you know okay, Jesus Jesus uh, was nonviolent and and you know love our enemies and all of these sort of concepts and ideas that we can generally agree on as far as Jesus was this way, but when it comes to applying it to well, how are we supposed to carry out our responsibilities while we're walking around on the earth? And yeah. I probably shouldn't kill anyone. That's pretty clear, you know, and I'm going to avoid that at all costs. But, you know, what happens if somebody breaks into my house and I'm also called to care for my family and protect my wife and kids? So in that scenario, and here's somebody who's breaking the law, and I'm well within my rights in Texas, for example, to gun somebody down who comes into my house or onto my property, I can just shoot and kill that person. And I'm in pretty good shape here in Texas. If I can prove that that's the case, um, you know, so is that the exception to the rule as, as a Christian man, I'm called to protect my home and my family and I shouldn't let some intruder just come in and murder my family. What do you guys think about that? Cause I've heard that before. That's definitely been you know, something I've thought about. It's, it's, I own a gun and I have a concealed carry and yet I don't consider myself somebody who could ever take the life of another person. But when I did get a gun and when I did get that concealed carry a number of years ago, it was really this fear that I had in the back of my mind and thinking about, you know, I do need to defend my, my family from an intruder. What do you guys think? I totally get where you're coming from when you bring that up and where most people who would object to a nonviolent position uh, on these grounds, it, it's totally understandable the, the position that they're taking. I mean, all of us have uh, you know, family and, and friends and people around us in our lives who we are uh, responsible towards. But the question isn't just, you know, what is what is my responsibility in that regard, but also how am I to go about fulfilling that responsibility? So for example, you might have somebody who uh, is, is destitute, you know, a, a very poor family, and you have the, the head of the household, the, the, the husband or father or whatever, who uh, is thinking, I, well, I got to feed my family or they're going to starve. Well, it's not acceptable for him to then become a thief uh, in order to feed his family, right? That's still sin to steal. So the the ends are important, but the means are also important. And Christian ethics doesn't allow us to take an the ends justify the means approach to how we think about these things. So I think that really sort of invalidates when people say, uh, you know, my my responsibility to my family means, that I must use violence to defend them if I think it it comes to that. Uh, if and this is this is begging the question. This is a propositional if, but if it is unethical for a Christian to ever use violence, then by default it wouldn't be God's will to use violence in that situation. God's will would be for you to look for some other way to address it. Maybe that means laying down your own life to protect your family, but. The point is, it's begging the question when people uh, phrase it that way. So we kind of have to 
we have to step back further from that and 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 really look at it from what we've been talking about this entire time. Uh, what what would what does God want us to do? And just real real briefly on that point, one of the things that was mentioned earlier is looking at the example of Jesus. Um, many people who would not take the the nonviolence position may counter, yes, well, what's going to happen at the end of history uh, when the the eschatological wrath of God uh, falls on unrepentant men? And regardless of your view of of hell, whether it's eternal conscious torment or annihilation or whatever, the point is there's some judgment uh, that God is going to bring down on the unrepentant. Uh, to which I would say, you know, even if Jesus used violence to some extent in his earthly ministry, and the only place I, you might make that argument would be the temple cleansing, uh, and, and that's debatable. But even if that were the case, um, Jesus is God, and we're not. So just things that God can do doesn't necessarily mean it's right for us to do. If God wants to annihilate unrepentant sinners— that's his prerogative because he's God, but we're not, and we have to consider what does he want us to do in in our situations. So one thing that, that kind of strikes me is that usually the point of, you mean you would just let someone break in your home and you'd do nothing, usually has a little bit of passion behind it. There's that defense of, well... I can't just let someone come into my house and, and, and harm my children. And I think the disconcerting part is that there's this sort of unquestioning acceptance of the right to self-defense and, and that it's not very tempered by the ethic and commitment to nonviolence. You know, as Nick said, what is, what is Christ, what does God want us to do in order to live peaceably? And if we sort of uh, just unquestioningly defend our right to self-defense, we're not tempering that with what does it mean to live peaceably with all men? It's kind of like, well, then what's the point? And so the other thing that I I think of when I think of that argument is, okay, right now you're listening to a podcast that is discussing this issue. Between now and I hope you'll never have to answer this question, you are responsible for coming up with some alternative to what if you can't use your gun? You know, there's all kinds of things that could go wrong. And if you don't actually think through well, if I didn't have a gun, here's what I would do if someone broke into my home. Then I don't really think you're interested in doing anything other than killing somebody if they break into your home. If you really haven't given it another thought. So we can talk about, you know, people who say, well, it's just my last resort. I don't really want to, but I will if I have to. Because if you've never really made a plan to deal with it without a firearm... I think there's no validity to the I don't really want to kind of thing. I don't really think anybody wants to kill anybody. But the attitude itself, and again, we go back to the tenor and the hard attitude of the Christian life. What does it mean for someone to defend the right to to use a gun or use lethal force if they have to, if that's all they're talking about is the right to do so? What are what are the alternatives? And whether or not you're promoting them, whether or not you're a deep theologian, you know, steeped in nonviolent resistance is not even part of the question at the moment. What does it say about you that that's really your only go-to? Well, since we have the luxury of even contemplating these questions in the in the comfort of our own home and hopefully relative safety, it I guess it, it really bears saying maybe this is something we should continue thinking about. It's something that uh, we really ought to give thought to. What is our relationship 
to the use of force in this way personally in, in aspects even of self-defense. Uh, now that we've kind of broached the issue in our own minds, maybe you haven't given it a lot of thought. Maybe it's time to do that. Yeah, and I want to make sure that you know listeners here will will have something a little bit more tangible than, oh, this is a contentious debate with all sorts of options and, and oh, yeah, okay, I want to think through it. I think there's some, some things that we can talk about. Um, I think it was the head of the NRA several years ago in, one, in response to one of the, um, I think it was the Sandy Hook shooting, said the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, you know, the left goes crazy with that kind of thing because they are adamantly against gun ownership. They are against the right to, to bear arms. And people on the right or people who are pro-gun ownership are like, yeah, that, that's what we would have. If we would have had someone nearby that had a gun, then they, would have, then they would have stopped that. Yeah, sure. In the very moment that something is about to happen that is violent. If the only thing between a violent killer and a bunch of school children is another person, a good guy with a gun, to stop him, yes, I would be in favor of that. Of course that's an option, to stop someone who's about to kill a bunch of children by simply you know, killing them. I don't really think that that's – I don't know. I don't know if that puts you in ethical – gray area or what, but um, even Richard Rohr, who is a Catholic priest who would be not in any way promoting gun use, has said, and I don't know where the audio is because I've listened to a lot of audiobooks by him, he says the question about that kind of thing is silly because we always have to have a way to protect the vulnerable. There has to be some sort of uh, method at our disposal to protect people. So it's just kind of a silly question in his mind is, you know, well, would, would you just let someone get away with killing somebody? No, you wouldn't. But that's not really the point. To be somebody who is committed to nonviolence isn't about, well, in the moment of reacting, should I kill somebody or not? That gets down to the only in the moment decisions. It's about what kind of a Christian am I? How am I going to promote peace in a much longer term sort of, sort of way? Well, you know, and I just have been thinking about this for a little bit, is that we actually have gone really extreme in a way to, uh, oh, am I going to pick up a gun and kill somebody? And yet there's a number of other dimensions uh, to nonviolence prior to that that are are actually up for debate as well. Like, it, it's not even just a question of, oh, am I going to shoot and kill somebody? It's oh, am I going to respond in violence in any way? Like, am I even going to use my fists to attack somebody? Am I going to engage in any kind of violent action towards somebody who's coming at me in violence? And I don't know if that's like too big for us to really get into right now, but I, I just feel like we spent a lot of time talking about guns and it's like, but are we talking about defending ourselves in any way whatsoever and being violent in any way whatsoever when it comes to this sort of thing? Or are we just talking about just whether lethal, or not we should kill force. people? Yeah, no, I think, yeah. It, I think the big question is, is, is it legitimate to use lethal force? If you're able to, <laughs> sorry, the image of this, if you're able to tackle the guy who's about to shoot your kids and pin him down and have your, one of your kids or your wife or somehow 
have Siri call the cops. I think many people just assume that, well, if someone else has a gun and they're about to use it or something, you know, equally as lethal, then that's all I got. I mean, if I don't have a gun that's it's equal in force, then then I don't have anything. Um, and yet that's not necessarily true. Well, if anything, the recommendation from this podcast is consider your heart attitude. I mean, that's and examine the scriptures. I think, you know, we've got. I keep we keep we have to keep going back to Matthew five and not just 38 through 42. We also got to go back to 21 and talk about, you know, our attitude toward anger and and so on and so forth. And we got to move beyond that. I mean, I, well, one of the articles we'll link in, in the article is a, is a, a piece by one of my super awesome friends in Austin Graduate School of Theology. Uh, his name is Daniel and he about moving beyond anger because uh, that, that's like fundamental here. I think the question we're really asking is, is it legitimate to use lethal force? If in the scenario of someone intruding into my home and about to attack my kids, I definitely would say there's no, I don't think there's anything ambiguous or vague or wrong about tackling and preventing the person, even if it means for that matter, breaking his arm or something just to get violence or lethal violence, you know, to a minimum or to, to zero. I really don't think I'd be standing uh, at the judgment seat and God, you know, says to me, well, that was a bad decision. You you broke his arm to prevent him from killing your children. Because I would just say, well, yeah, but that's because I wasn't going to use a gun because I, you know, take you seriously. Um, that's probably what I would say. Yeah, but that's also, these are also edge cases, though. I mean, to a certain extent, what we're really getting at here is what is our heart attitude toward violence? And that's, I mean, in a, in a sense, that's what Piper was getting at. That's what you were getting at in your article. And that's what we're, I think, trying to really get across here to, to listeners. And, you know, yeah, hopefully no one listening will ever have to deal with a lethal force situation. Yeah. What I, hopefully we will, you know, be communicating here, though, is not just thinking about the possibility of using lethal force, but what are, what is the broader, what are the broader implications too? You know, and we get back to Matthew chapter five, and we get and we get into verses thirty-eight and through forty-two regarding turning the other cheek. And but we also got to look at Matthew five, starting in twenty-one, and talking about you know what is our what is our attitude toward anger, and and that's a that's an important thing too because that's fundamental to who we are as Christians. Like what are what is our heart attitude going to be like in the, in this as a whole? Are we going to act like what what does Jesus have to say about that, and how are we going to act? That's important that you also said that these are kind of edge cases, because we use these as sort of filters for helping us decide what is ethical, and that's pretty typical in thinking through ethics. But, and, and I don't want to not do justice to the people who may have actually, who might be listening and have gone through those scenarios where their family has been threatened, and I don't want to cast judgment in any way on the decisions you, you may have made. Um, I'm not here, if, you know, as someone who doesn't believe it's it's right to for Christians to use violence. I pass no judgment on people who have chosen that. I don't really think I would choose any differently given the tools that I have. But I think it's it's good for us to consider what what other options are there when it comes to thinking through what happens if violence is about to be had in, in before our eyes. So I think it bears mentioning that when we when you hear about for instance, people going through military training or going through police training and things like that, they practice, practice, practice on all sorts of different scenarios. And perhaps that's a little bit uh, overkill in certain situations with, with respect to us. But one of the things that that should emphasize on some level is that these scenarios don't just come automatically. 
in some respects, you need to think them through um, beforehand. You need to think them through before they happen. What are some of the practical things that we can do to like be prepared in this in these instances? What do you guys have to say about that? Well, and you're saying be prepared in more ways than one, not just am, am I able to be a good shooter if that's where we come right. down. You're talking about this what is, are other ways to practice ways of nonviolent yeah, yeah, resistance that's a, and that's exactly right. And in particular, what I guess I failed to mention really is that there are ways that are nonviolent that we can use to de-escalate conflict, to de-escalate other forms of violence, that if we practice beforehand, we can we can uh, make a difference in that respect. So that's, I guess, really the point here. What do you guys have to say about that? That's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is the phrase, blessed are the, are the peacemakers. Well, when you really get to, down to what that has to mean, it's that peace doesn't just uh, fall out of the sky. It's something that we actually have to to work towards. And you know, you mentioned the example of people in the in the military who train for for war. Uh, Christians, at least, ought to put at least as much emphasis on training towards the things that that make for peace. Uh, I mean, there are are many different ways we can look at that. I mean, one is to uh, work towards preventing the types of opportunities for violence to even crop up. I mean, you can you can look at, for example, nonviolent uh, security measures and, and defenses that would uh, help to prevent someone from even having the opportunity to aggress against you. Uh, you can study the, the, the resources on people who have been very successful at peacemaking in areas of genocide and, and foreign conflicts where the bloodshed is just immense, and yet they've been able uh, to de-escalate violent situations by, by breaking the cycle using the element of surprise or a whole number of other different types of things. And to someone who's never considered this before, uh, who thinks that maybe violence is, is the only option, that may sound kind of silly. But when you look at the actual research and what other people uh, have done, you see there, there are other opportunities, but you have to be willing to, to look for them. Um, and just as, as kind of a, a closing plug for a resource that, that I would recommend uh, is Richard Hayes' book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, uh, in which it, it's a pretty lengthy book. It's over 500 pages, but he really digs into this specific issue and a number of other issues and really probes us to think about how we render her- hermeneutical judgments on ethical decisions. It's a very helpful resource. So I'm going to bring up something that I thought about recently um, when I saw this movie Hacksaw Ridge, which uh, is the recent Mel Gibson movie, and it's the story about the man who was a Christian pacifist who uh, went to war and you know maintained his commitment to pacifism, to not hold a gun, to not use a gun, and yet still find a way that he could serve as a medic in that situation. And you know, he faced all of these different challenges, and he faced all of this opposition. They tried to drive him out of the military and he just stuck to his resolve and um, it's a great movie. I would encourage anybody to go see it, but I think there's an interesting parallel in that when we think about 
you know, what are we to do and what are we called to do when it comes to uh, our mission on this earth for the kingdom of God is as Christians, we're called to be, you know, medics to the dying people of this world, to people who don't know Christ. And we're supposed to act as people who go to reach out to them, to heal those people. We're the ones that have the hope of eternal life. And we're the ones that have the message of the gospel. And the best way that we can do that is to just run headlong into this um, violent, warring, uh, hateful world with a message and a lifestyle that is the complete opposite. And so I just think when it comes to this idea of nonviolence and when it comes to this idea of how we can conduct ourselves in the world, I think it, it just goes back to this idea of, of, of lights in the darkness and, and the way of this world is to repay violence with violence, to escalate violence uh, with uh, retaliation. And for us to just trust that maybe Jesus was onto something, that he was onto something, that the way to actually end the cycle of violence is to receive violence and respond in love to, as Brian Zahn says, uh, to recycle violence into love and into forgiveness and we end up becoming the end point of the fist and of the bullet and of the hatred. So that's what I'm that's what I'm feeling. Jason, I think that's a really uh, great place to end our thoughts on how to think about nonviolence. You know, as libertarians, we certainly we didn't talk about that too much in this episode. But as libertarians, we certainly are not going to be in favor of the state restricting your right. Uh, or restricting someone else's right. There are many people who will not agree with us, who don't even follow the way of Christ. It's not for us to say, well, no, you're not allowed to use a gun because Jesus said you're, you, know, you shouldn't do that, or anything like that. But as libertarians, we're definitely against the state preventing your right to use a gun. But the question that we're asking is, in some ways, about Christians, is does the non-aggression principle only have one exception? And are Christians just allowed to kind of take that as, oh, whew, I can use a gun if I have to, if it's only in self-defense, because we definitely believe in non-aggression, uh, especially in the you know final sort of lethal sense. But I hope that in this podcast episode, we've given listeners food for thought and maybe even a different angle on some things, maybe even uh, rouse some passions about this that... Uh, you know, it might make people a little angry. You're welcome to uh, send us some feedback. If you want to do that, whether it's uh, constructive, if you're angry, that's okay too. If you're uh, excited about the way we approached it, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can catch us on Twitter at LCI official. You can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash libertarianchristians. And as always, you can go to libertarianchristians.com to reach us there as well. Thanks for joining us this week, and we will talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.